authorial intent, a neo-surrealist revising a will from his deathbed. Authorial intent is a more representative stream of consciousness from later in the 20th century. The author was a critic and an opponent of the notion that a writer's intentions are a guide to assessing his work. In the story, this writer tells about his pseudonym, the author, who wrote underground stories and essays while attending high school. By exploring the death of that other writer, just before graduation, Greg raises his objection to authorial intent. Why should readers rely on the author to determine truth in a story, when some authors, including this one, intentionally lie within their work? Judge for yourself. I must announce right from the start that this is a true story. To date, all my stories have been labeled true as, as if I'm Mr. Nonfiction or something. There is a difference. This one actually is true. Only time will tell if anybody notices. I honestly don't know when or where I was born, and I'm not pretentious enough to claim that I do. I only know what I've been told. It wasn't a good day, at least not for my mother. You see, I weighed ten pounds. I never played in a baseball game that went into extra innings, and I do not know why. More than once, the game ended tied in the bottom of the ninth. On the other hand, I was in a football game that went into double overtime. We won. Tells you something, doesn't it? As you can tell, I'm a writer by trade. I got my start writing comedy purely by accident. For as long as I can remember, people laughed at true stories I told and took quite seriously. After years of people making fun of me, I dedicated my life to making people laugh. I have to confess that I've fallen short of success. My ultimate goal was never achieved. I always wanted to write a short story that was longer than 341 pages. It never worked out because they kept turning into novels. Because of my early triumphs, I never worked much in typical summer jobs. I'm grateful for that because I was a dreadful fast food employee. One summer, I did yard work and mowed three lawns with a weed eater before someone finally told me that it was quicker and easier to use a lawnmower. In my neighborhood, when I was a child, there was a secret passage between the fences of our neighbors' houses. Whenever the kids on the block found insulated electrical wire on the street, we put it in our hiding place. No one ever found it. Animals have always been my friends. Actually, being a friend of mine is no great trick. All you have to do is be honest and sincere. I hated dishonesty, particularly my own, which made signing yearbooks a problem. I didn't care whether they had a nice summer. I just wanted to see them in classes next year. I learned how much I loved plants when I was in elementary school after making a critical mistake. One day, while practicing hitting foul balls with a baseball bat, I got frustrated because I was only hitting line drives and grounders. In anger, I swung the bat at the tree in my front yard and wounded it. I cried for hours, afraid it would die. To this day, whenever I call home, I ask how the tree is doing. At a young age, I developed an appreciation for music. I remember the protests and the music of the 1960s, the music without the protests in the 1970s, and the protests over the music in the 1980s. I preferred devil music to hymns, again, a reference to honesty. To counter the influence of music, my parents sent me to Boy Scouts and to church. Religion was more effective than scouting. 
I never fit in as a Boy Scout because none of the other boys knew the words to the same campfire songs I did. The first year I went to camp, one of our tentmates was a homosexual. He tried to hide it because he thought we would discriminate against him if we knew. He was right. The turning point in my education came in the sixth grade when I finally learned the parts of speech, particularly the preposition. In spite of my initial confusion, everything fell into place when I grasped the permanence of the link between preposition and object. It still reminds me of marriage. On the day I was married, hundreds of people went to cemeteries and mourned the dead. Likewise, on my honeymoon, people, many of the same people, flocked to the cemeteries with flowers and tears and, yes, when I was growing up, people paid good money for the milk they drank. My allergy to milk concerned me deeply. I was afraid women would not be attracted to me if they knew I didn't like it. They might think I was the macho type, I reasoned, so I always drank some and slowly developed a duodenal ulcer. I really didn't drink much when I was young. Even during my reckless stage, I justified all my consumptions. Sure, I'd been accused of drinking entire bottles of gin during a single outing, but I only drank in accordance with the law. In my state, it was illegal to drink with an open bottle anywhere in the car. Police even searched the trunk. So I was forced to either drink the whole thing before driving home or pour the rest out. I believe starving Africans and Asians could use a good strong drink, making it immoral to waste. At the risk of sounding stupid, I will say that the turning point for me mentally happened at a party. I remember blacking out. How could you forget an experience like that? When I regained consciousness, an unattractive blonde was standing over me. I asked what happened, and she told me she was flattered and walked away. God has tried to communicate to me several times in my life, but never with total success. I would not hazard to guess why, but the failure is likely due to his lack of sincerity or my lack of honesty, but we've already been through all that. Really, I do not go to church to listen to the preacher, because the facial expressions make all the difference to me. Obviously, my religious experiences were not in church, with one exception. Once... In the chapel of a free will Baptist church, when I was all alone and praying for the health of a friend, Jesus told me to witness. I was confused for weeks because I hadn't seen any crime. Never fear, he told me later. I was shaving and arguing with the Lord. It's okay. All the Old Testament types bickered with God, and if I'm anything at all, I'm an Old Testament type. The Lord said he would reveal the crime to me so I could witness if I would go to school early that day and listen to the school chorus practice from outside in the courtyard. I could barely hear them from the courtyard. The agnostics politely tell me they think I'm lying. They say, we are not sure, we are still seeking. Jesus told me what the crime was, and for the rest of my life I have cut myself every time I shave. The crime? Not loving yourself enough to care at all about your neighbors. It seems we have all loved our neighbors exactly as much as we love ourselves, explaining suicide and murder within the same easy-to-learn formula. I bring this up as part of the discussion about drinking and blacking out. You see, Jesus wanted me to change my testimony, but twice he tried to take a deposition during my blackouts. The damage was already done on the third occasion. At dawn, with my head swollen from a hangover, I really felt like I betrayed him. For that reason and others... I never drank much during the summer I went to college. I spent my nights counting sheep and reading inspiring tales about members of the British Parliament. 
Both religion and alcohol taught me a lot about friendship. The chord struck clearly for the first time after a keg party with my first high school sweetheart. That night, I woke up from a wet dream and realized I had no legitimate sexual desires for the girl. When we broke up the next week, I told her we should be friends, and we never really spoke to one another again. The girl went away. The dreams didn't. Until I learned how to keep friendship sacred, sex was always intimidating. In elementary school, the boys used to hide in the bushes and play army. Once, when a comrade and I were going AWOL, we saw what happened between Albert and Gail. I really liked Gail because she was a sixth grader and she wore a bra. Albert was the only Negro in the school. He pulled her bra strap when they were returning a kickball. She screamed, and there was a big scandal, but Greg and I never told, and nobody ever knew we were there. It was just too shocking, mysterious, frightening. Albert paid for his crime in junior high school. He was one of the kids arrested for treason because he couldn't properly punctuate the Pledge of Allegiance. I set the record high score on that punctuation test by using rules the other students didn't know. For years, I felt guilty about not supporting Gail that afternoon. After all, she wore a bra. To a fifth grader, that made her special, but not as special as she seemed in high school when I first saw her braless. Usually, I don't tell that story. Even after I learned to keep friendship sacred, I didn't like it when girls told me about their sexual encounters. I knew I couldn't top their stories without lying. It would be easy to say that friends are supposed to listen to each other, but mine never really listened to me when it mattered. They didn't care when I told them the world was round. They didn't even act surprised. They laughed when I said God didn't know what time it was. If he was prompt, I told them, the world would have ended long ago. Every time I insisted that I loved them, they reacted as if they didn't think the words had meaning or power. I'll give you power. Love has put more people in both churches and asylums than any force mankind does not fully understand. By harnessing that power, I could bring the world to its knees. Or its hands and knees. My sister always marked her calendar when we were growing up. She said it had something to do with dating. I'll always remember one of my old flames as a vampire. Not because she bit me, but because she never had a reflection. Her voice wouldn't even record on cassette one Christmas when we taped some duets for my grandmother. I liked her anyway. Once, parking together after a night at the drive-in watching skin flicks, she gave me that look of passion. We stopped kissing, and she slipped off one of her shoes slowly pulling down a sock to reveal her beautifully pale foot in the moonlight, she placed it on my lap. She said she appreciated the fact that I hadn't tried to rush her with peer pressure and asked if I wanted to suck on her toes. She didn't have to ask twice. When she broke up with me after the holidays, I realized she would have made a good child molester if I had only been a few years younger. I cried that night and refused to wipe the tears away. As a child, I believed that dry tears would permanently stain my face. I was bitter, so my best friend told her I killed myself. She called my house in a panic from school that day, and I calmly told her that I missed classes because I was at the dermatologist's office getting the stains from the tear tracks removed from my cheeks. It would be easy to say that friends are supposed to tell each other their problems, but verbal communication is a lost art. My friends always let me know by taking drugs, flunking classes, or just hating me. 
that none of them ever wrote a suicide note. The only time in my life I ever really feared death was as a child. At night, between my father's snores, I would hear the burglar. He always broke into the house so quietly that I never knew how long he had been inside. But eventually I would hear his footsteps coming down the hall. He looked into my brother's room, but he never saw the stereo. Surely he would have taken it if he did. He entered my sister's room, where he spent what seemed to be hours looking for jewelry. Again, he never found any. As he slowly stepped toward my room, I wondered if he would kill me because he wasn't finding any valuables. I tried to lie still and breathe normally, pretending not to be awake. I was convinced he would kill me if he knew I was a witness. Sometimes the burglar would stay for hours. He was suspicious of my irregular breathing. He could see me squinting my eyes to keep them closed. He observed the way my whitened knuckles clutched at my covers. Not wanting to murder me unless he was certain I was a witness, the burglar walked around and around my bed, checking to see if I was asleep. I tried to ignore the carpeted footsteps as I faked a natural rollover. The only reason I'm alive today is my ability to play dead. Every morning I'd wake up and check for missing valuables. At one point I decided he wasn't a very good thief, only to realize that he might not be a thief at all. Maybe he was a psychopathic killer who only came to torment and murder me. Wasn't much of a killer, either. The nightmare changed when I got older. Once I woke up in a bar, dancing with a fat girl. I was terrified because I just wanted to talk with her, but she couldn't hear me over the music on the dance floor. Do you come here often? I asked. Normally I don't take strangers back to my apartment, but I'll make an exception for you, she yelled over the music. No, what I said was, do you come here very much? That all depends on you, but I'm game if you are. That's not what I said, I yelled. There's nothing wrong with my bed, she replied with an indignant tone. The box springs are almost brand new and the sheets are clean. I'm sorry, I said, shaking my head and giving up. Don't say that now, she told me. Tell me in the middle of the night when you decide you have to go. There were never any monsters under my bed because my mattress rested flat on the floor. However, there were ghosts in my closet. Many of them are still there, as a matter of fact. They jump out and scare me when I'm throwing on a raincoat on my way to work. Sometimes they hide in my handkerchief pocket and frighten me all day long. So I believe in ghosts and I believe in God, just like I believe in both love and hate. Although I must confess I sometimes cannot tell which is which. One of the defense witnesses said, We all learn to love our neighbors. <laughs> sure, my neighbor doesn't even love himself. He's attempted suicide twice and didn't care enough about what he was doing to succeed. No kidding. I think God hides under my bed at night. Somebody feeds my sheep. I just count them. In church, I learned that God watches over me. Well, we all get the feeling from time to time that we are being watched. On occasion, I could even see the judge's cards. 6.5, 7.1, 6.9, Norma told me that she became an atheist because Jesus was a man. She said God set the women's movement back 2,000 years by not begetting a daughter instead of a son. I thought the movement didn't exist back then, but I told her I believe men and women are equal. Norma said she was better than I was. It would be easy to say that friends are supposed to comfort each other. 
True, my cats, fish, and newts were always a comfort, but people demanded too much or not enough. After all, I couldn't comfort Julie on the day I made her cry. And when I first found out I was dying, Teresa couldn't have comforted me if she tried. Ironically, she didn't try. In my adolescent years, I was attracted to girls who wore braces. It added something to their smiles. However, when I got braces, I learned what a handicap it could be. For two years, I didn't kiss anybody. Once at a party, the pain grew so bad, even with the beer to disguise it, I couldn't do my comic routine. Everybody felt sorry for me, and we laughed about my teeth. That night, my family called the police because they wanted to get me arrested for driving under the influence. I showed them. When the cop pulled me over, I was only driving while impaired. Most of my friends stopped visiting me when the condition prevented me from telling jokes. But this is not the first time my humor has gone sour. During one spring break at San Antonio, Texas, my roommate gave me a double dose of antihistamine while we were out drinking because I didn't abuse drugs and he wanted to see how a straight person responded. I became severely depressed and tried to find a place where I could be alone. Unaware of what had been done to me, I took an elevator to the top of the Hemisphere Tower and considered jumping off. I chose a place on the ground where I hoped to land, but I called it off because I wasn't adept at climbing fences and I feared people would laugh at me if I fell trying to climb over the security fence. For about a year after that night, I didn't tell a single funny joke. Also, my first experience with drug abuse led me down the path to the hard stuff. Before long, I was smoking tea leaves and garden mint for that pure menthol flavor. I kicked the habit shortly after meeting the woman I later married. Love conquers all things. From time to time, my jokes would slip from funny to weird, because I never really knew what made people laugh. I held my audience in low esteem, because I learned some of the most popular jokes in sixth grade. For example, Pete and Repeat were sitting on this wall. Pete fell off... Wait, wait, I can't tell that one. I always forget how it ends. Um, Julie never liked my jokes. We stayed close over the years. I sent her a card every Christmas, even though she didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. A true friend. She was with me to the end. Julie was fascinated because she had never seen anybody die before, not even her cousin, who was eaten by cannibals. Like Julie, my wife stuck with me when others wouldn't. Even after I asked her to go away so she wouldn't have to watch the deterioration, she was very supportive. She did flush my fish and feed the newts to the cats, but I know she had her reasons. She touched my soul deeply the night I realized I was dying. When I rolled over to tell her my discovery, she asked if it was because of something she had done, as though my death would be her fault. Likewise, after receiving my letter, all my friends seemed to think they were responsible. It was selfish of them. My wife always asked why. Teresa asked why, too, but my wife really wanted an answer. It's funny. After dying for a few weeks, why doesn't seem so special? I never thought too much about it. On the bus trip to California a few months ago, Teresa saved a seat for me because she didn't want to talk to me at all during the entire trip and thought the effect would be greater if we sat together. I carried on my end of the conversation in spite of her. Sure, I wondered why some of my friends disappeared when the laughs stopped. I figured some of them were joking about my fate. It was so bad that even the press conference was treated like a stand-up routine. 
I was more than halfway through my prepared statement before the chuckles and catcalls stopped. Couldn't they see I was dying up there? There was one question I couldn't answer. I still wonder why I was arrested for driving through an empty crosswalk across the street from school one night. I almost got run down three times on my way to school, but no police officers were there to protect me. They were too busy setting up roadblocks to stop drunk driving. One time I was actually hit by a driver who saw me in the crosswalk at the last moment and swerved, but in the wrong direction. He got out, looked at his car, and then started telling me that I would have to pay for the dent. I told him insurance couldn't possibly cover the damage that had been done to his brain if he was serious. He asked me if I thought I was a comedian. No insult there. The most persistent question, am I afraid to go? No. In fact, I relish the thought that my books will be re-released after I die and sell better than ever before. The money might convince my wife to enjoy the stories I wrote. She once told me she hated my books because she wasn't in them. She wouldn't have liked it if the jokes were on her. I have no regrets. There is something nice about knowing that somewhere in the world, during the minute I die, somebody will say, every minute X number of people in the world die. I will be one of them. You see, I haven't been part of an X number since birth. Why fight it? I haven't fought much since the time I was assaulted by two Jews who objected to the jokes I was telling in a bar one night. I think they believed I was making fun of them. I never had been much of a fighter. Once in junior high school, I was picked to fight a guy who was insulting my friends. I didn't bear any grudge, though. had no incentive to fight. I tried to psych myself up by convincing myself that he'd killed my dog. Consequently, I was so upset, I let my friends down and rushed home to see if Grover was all right. My temper protected me. Julie's first steady boyfriend was jealous of our friendship and threatened to kill me when she broke up with him. He thought she broke up over me. I told him he didn't understand friendship. He insisted on fighting and called me a coward when I declined. I began thrusting my head up against the wall outside school until blood had stained my shirt and I'd torn all the skin off the left side of my face. I think he decided he was better off not dating a girl who was a friend of mine. The saddest experience was when I finally came to terms with Teresa, my prodigal friend. We decided to settle our differences by engaging in a borderline sexual experience, transforming our relationship into something less than friendship. We said a weekend, but my condition was so bad at the time that I blacked out for three days. I haven't seen her since. Not only do I wonder what I missed with her, I wonder what messages Jesus left me while I was out. Sometimes it seemed like he only wanted to talk to me when I was unconscious, but I never had a more helpful friend. Jesus taught me how to handle peer pressure, why I can see the future, and what friends are for. Someone asked me yesterday if I wanted to confess my sins. I just stared at the creep. I've been confessing my sins all my life, Father, every step of the way. God can redeem me by granting me absolution for my books. However, I did admit one moral transgression. I once cut 78 pages out of a book just to enter a writing contest for books that were 250 pages or less. It seemed wrong to do that just for money, but it was so simple. I just I just cut out all the plagiarism. As far as last words go, I have several editions of last words totaling 341 pages and more. Anyway, nobody really knows what to say about death. When my brother was killed by a hit-and-run driver, the rest of my family was more angry than sad. 
They wanted to know who did it. They wanted their day in court. They wanted to see him behind bars. All I knew is that I didn't want to see my brother in the ground, and I didn't care why he was being buried. Maybe on my second honeymoon, I'll mourn the dead. I spent weeks, maybe even months, trying to come up with a meaningful last request. Nothing really struck me. Finally, I I asked that my coffin be sealed without nails. Use glue or tape, I told them. Nails are an instrument of the devil because they were used to crucify Jesus. Alone with only Julie now, I'm feeling less rejected, but more betrayed. I shouldn't spend my time trying to guess who will cry at my funeral and who won't, but I'm baffled that I will never know the answers to those questions, and I could see the future. Well, enough about me. The author, age 17, died Tuesday from injuries received in a battle of wits. Services pending. Aren't you going to ask me what I meant by that? Music by Kevin MacLeod.